Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available, Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft, Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming, Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore, and Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. All right, what more do I need to say? He's back. Enjoy, peeps. On this episode, we discuss what's new with Pat. We discuss how humans' allostatic ability has decreased in the modern world, leading to an increased risk of injury, disease, and sickness. I asked Pat to share his thoughts on sport versus health, and I asked Pat, how does he define health? I asked Pat, how does he measure VO2 max? I asked Pat for his thoughts on psychological health. I asked Pat for his thoughts on why humans need to be able to express their wild animal nature to maintain balance and overall health. I asked Pat to share with us his highlights of 2018 and to also fill us in on what he's got going on in 2019. And finally, I asked Pat, what is he currently reading? Guys, as always, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Pat, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Pat, we are recording, my man. It is so good to finally reconnect. We haven't spoke since August. It's December now. Has it been that long? Yeah, yeah. Listen, we're fucking too busy, too busy, man. Well, you're, you're a lot, you know, you're, you're a busy guy, and I've just been bogged down with, with college work, you know, so... um. But listen, as always, it's great to connect and, uh, you know, coming into the Christmas week and NFL season is is in full swing. So how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I have been busy, but there's been some downtime. It's just been, like, weird, like, schedule-wise. Um, 
you know, I think 2018 has probably been the big, busiest year of my life. Um, it's been like a transitional year from, you know, like, it, it's funny, I, I never, I never would have envisioned myself sort of uh, having the life that I have at this point in time, when I was a younger man. Um, and it's, it's funny, like, it's, it's uh, reminds me of training. It's like, you wouldn't start somebody off uh, a novice trainee and have them you know, be doing these super advanced programs that they wouldn't be able to physically tolerate from like a volume and an intensity standpoint. And I think that life can be the same way where it's like, you know, sometimes you can try to bite off more than you can chew in some ways. Uh, and, and I feel like in some ways this 2018 year has been um, one of those ones where it's like, I, I haven't been used to some of the demands that have been placed on me in terms of like, travel and and going places and trying to do speaking engagements and and um and create new presentations and just keep up with a lot of different areas and you know it's like there's been times during the year where i can really feel uh elements of fatigue and burnout from from trying to do that mm -hmm. and but i think it's it's like almost it's like training you know what i mean like if you can just simply get used to something it becomes normal it's like creeping creeping normality is what I've always kind of been after in terms of tra uh, the training process. And I, it's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't understand. Like uh, you want to get your body used to it so that even what other people would consider to be like ex extreme training or, or really wild kinds of volume uh, is just the, the new normal for you. It's just, you have to be very patient and, and build over time and be super consistent in order to do that. But um yeah, it's, it's, it's been certainly like, it's, it's crazy to think that it's been since August. It doesn't seem like it could have possibly been that long. Um, yeah, I know. It's, it's, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Just uh, on that point there, you, you touched on, you know, like the body basically adapting. Something you spoke about uh, on one of the podcasts I listened to recently could have been the Jim Laird one that I, I was speaking to you about just before we hopped on here. Um, you were speaking about kind of, you know, people's diminishing ability to like maintain homeostasis in different environments and you spoke about like this year you started like walking to work in february in just your t-shirt just to like to open up your bandwidth of allostasis capability so like do you want to touch on that because i thought that was like really funny yeah it's funny i actually um a couple of weeks ago i taught a rethinking the big pattern seminar out in santa barbara california and uh it, it's it's one of those places where the weather is pretty much always like kind of perfect and uh, in, in Fahrenheit temperatures, it's, it's, it's like it's always between like 70 and 85. And it's not like excessively humid. So they're kind of saying how everybody starts complaining dramatically out there when the temperature pops up above 85 or below 70. And I'm like, man, in New York, it's like never between those temperatures. And um, it, it's always somewhere. And, but to me, like New York is kind of like soft, like, like Massachusetts is much colder in New York, and I'm sure the people listening in Minnesota will be like, oh, Massachusetts is nothing either. Uh, you know, you want some real cold, come here. And then I'd talk to Jim Laird or somebody like that who's from Edmonton in Canada, and they'd be like, Minnesota, do you have any idea how cold it is up here? Uh, and then, you know, Santa Claus will probably chime in at some point and be like, you, you guys have nothing on this. But um, it's the same thing, I think, in terms of, like, creeping normalcy in terms of like what the body can actually get used to and what feels normal. And um, so I, yeah, like last year, I, um, I just wanted to see like, if, if I walked like it, cause in New York, you have to do a lot of walking. Like people, I don't think when people come and visit, they're always like, man, like 
my body's tired. Like I, we've walked so much today. I'm like, yeah, I guess like that's, that's just what you have to do here. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to see like if I just wear a t-shirt and I don't really give myself the option of wearing a jacket, like as it gets colder and colder and colder, will I just simply adjust to it? And um, for the most part, yeah. Like the one thing that really gets you is wind. But uh, I, I really felt like my body learned how to produce more heat in response to like being out in the cold. Yeah. Um, and, and it was really like no big deal. Uh, as long as I just was super consistent about it and didn't really uh, go to a route that like allowed me to put on more layers at any point in time. It, it really was like literally no big deal. And I've just kind of kept that going this year too. Like I, I basically like never really wear a jacket. And, um, but again, it's, it's not, it, it, there's been like two days where it's been like actually cold here, like in the twenties. Um, and, and even that's not that cold for me. So I, I, and, but I was talking to my friend, Eric out there who hosted the reefing and the big patterns in Santa, Santa Barbara. And he was like, yeah, I, I, I guess I hear what you're saying, but why would you even want to do that? Like, what's the, what's the point? And, um, and to me, it's just kind of like, I, I just sort of disagree with, with elements of Western culture in some yeah, ways, Yeah. you know, just, just this is like, I, when I look at Western culture and like the steps we've taken to create the modern environment that we live in, it's simply been a, a step-by-step reduction in all of the potential threats to homeostasis that we could face from nature. You know, like we, we regulate internal environment temperatures um, so that you're never really out of room temperature. And most people spend almost all their time inside. So it's like they never actually have to kick in like their allostatic mechanisms that would raise their internal temperature from a cold challenge or try to drop their internal temperature from a heat challenge. Um, and, and like when I think about like major, major factors that influence the body you know, from a threat perspective, like heat is, is at the top of the game. You know, and it's like it's, it's way up there. It's like heat yep. and pH are probably the two most fundamental uh, things that, that would really threaten the body. So I like to play with temperature. Now, it, what's interesting is like, you know, I work with, with – Ethan Grossman and he's a really good friend of mine he's a bodybuilder and and I'm always curious about like you know what what sorts of things are involved in his his life because bodybuilding is such an extreme sport and like uh it's such a it's it's a bizarre uh you know endeavor really when you think about it just like this pursuit of acquisition of as much possible muscle mass as you could throw on a frame through whatever means necessary and I, I started to think well if I really want to grow somebody, if I just want to grow tissues, I should probably reduce homeostatic threats in every possible realm, except the realms that would be purely in the pathways towards like protein synthesis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, I actually, for his population, I would want like just zero stress, almost like a farm animal, um, except for this one pathway that would lead to growth. And, and that's probably why, you know, it's like growth can be tissue specific. So for most Western society, this reduction of homeostatic threat probably leads to growth of adipose tissue. Um, and, and of course, they're just like completely afraid of any kind of a, of a disturbance to homeostasis and like shelter themselves from it versus like a bodybuilder. Uh, they should be sheltering themselves from every disturbance possible except for that mechanical tension and, you know, relatively heavy uh, mechanical volume acquisition. 
But other than that, like, don't, don't, because I feel like when you threaten your, your homeostat, when you threaten homeostasis from different angles and directions, it's like you have to allocate resources in that direction to combat it. And for bodybuilding, I only want you to allocate resources towards that one thing. So I don't really want you to have much of like an aerobic threat so that you have to allocate resources towards like uh, preparing your body to be able to handle more of that over time or temperature threat or anything like that. So it, it just gets me thinking about like, is there a perfect ratio of like homeostatic threats for different pursuits for people? And, you know, like, who the hell knows? Maybe some computer algorithm could figure that out. But for, for now, probably not, other than, than guesswork. Do you know what? That actually segues beautifully into a topic I want to ta- ask you about, which is this sort of thing of, like, sport versus health and what health means to you. But before before you just answer that, just on that, my thoughts on that homeostatic sort of question you bring up is, it depends. Like, what's your goal? Because obviously, like, okay, if Ethan, we'll just use Ethan as an example there. If he's if his sole goal is to just like accrue as much muscle mass as possible, well, then we got to make the training and the environment as specific to that as possible. But there's going to be trade offs to that. So, like, would Ethan be the most adaptable organism then? Like, in other certain situations, like, would he probably be the ideal person that we want? Like, in the middle of a war. Uh, yeah. you, know, you know where he has to go days on end starving and you know he has to walk forever and you know probably not if he's if he's like been so specialized in one area like this is the thing if you're going to specialize in one area you're going to make trade-offs in other areas so For sure. so it just comes down to like what's the goal here and like th- and this this will segue nicely into sport and health because so many people you know and i'll just use the term lay person just just to make this more you know just convenient for our discussion here like so many lay people confuse sport and health they they think that athletes are inherently like the most healthiest people going and it's like no they're not but th- th- this this is also important to understand is that there should be no judgment on that once the person actually is aware of the trade-off. So, like, if you said to, like, Eaton, do you, re- like, do you know that accruing as much, much mass as possible is probably reducing your, you know, your adaptability as an organism? But if your goal is just to be the best bodybuilder ever, like, what we're doing here is perfect. And he'd be like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. I just want to be an animal at bodybuilding. It's like, well, then there's no judgment. That's exactly it. And that's where he is, too, because I'll tell you, he's, like, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met and, like, completely understands it from a holistic manner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, just like uh, again, just finish my thoughts on the homeostatic thing too. Is that like we live in perpetual summer, Pat? Like we're in lit, yep. you know, light homes with the lights on all the time, and the and central heating's on all the time. And like again, that is diminishing the body's you know adaptability. And listen, like I mean, we know that a more adaptable organism is a more robust organism. Like the more we 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 start to get more stable or more specific in a certain domain, we're making serious trade offs to our adaptability. So that just kind of is my thoughts around homeostasis and you know adaptability. But again, again, as I just alluded to using Ethan there as the example, if you are trying to be the best in a particular specific domain whether it's a sport like American football or rugby or bodybuilding um, or whatever. And you're like, I'm aware of the trade-offs I'm making here in terms of like other things like health and longevity. Then that there's no judgment in that. You're like, listen, I'm fucking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die one day. It's like, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? It's like, well, I want to be the best fucking bodybuilder ever. Another guy could be, I want to be the best fucking linebacker ever. I know it could fucking do damage to my brain, but 
I know I know the consequences. I'm willing to make that trade off. I want to win a Super Bowl. I want to be the best fucking Formula One driver ever. Like I know the consequences of hitting a wall at 200 miles an hour. So it just comes down to like, what are your priorities? What are your goals? And like, do, is what you're doing aligned to that? And once that's the case, there's no judgment. But what the, what we're going to get into now is with people who confuse, you know sport and think that that is actually going to apply to longevity you know so i want to get you to talk about what the word health means to you and and like how do you define it yeah so i i have like a very specific set of criteria that i use to identify health and it's like to me there's a like a essentially like a chemical side and a biomechanic side Mm. um and and i define health as like uh having like it's, it's basically like VO2 max and movement variability um, based upon table tests and, and also like your ability to actually have to demonstrate motor control. But for the most part, it's, it's just test, table test movement variability. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people get confused about movement variability and there's constantly debate going back and forth. And, and you know, like my dude on that realm is Bill Hartman. Uh, I think he's, he's probably the most... Uh, objective thinker when it comes to human movement of anybody I've ever met. And, um, and I would say that, that, you know, from, from uh, the way that I understand his model, uh, you know, he is looking for people to be able, like he's, he primarily looks at movement from the perspective of the status of the axial skeleton. Um, and he's looking at it from the perspective of like, uh, you know, essentially like, fluid in a certain location will prevent a bone from moving into the same direction that fluid is overly present in. Uh, and, and then like the state in which the axial skeleton is stuck from a respiratory standpoint influences the direction where fluid is overly present in chambers, essentially like, like pockets or, or regions of the body. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if you go through osteopathic literature, you see that like these, these, uh, definitions of the positions of the bones of the axial skeleton, according to respiratory state have been defined for a long time. You know, like that's like osteopathic science is not new. It's pretty old. Um, and, and, and all these things within their world have been defined for a while. But essentially, like uh, a state of inhalation is one of expansion of the bones. And if I'm like talking about the pelvis under the state of inhalation, I would be talking about uh, an ilium bone where the top of the ilium bone is rolled forward. Uh, The top of the ilium bone, like relative to each other, they're moving away from each other in the frontal plane. And from a transverse plane perspective, they're in external rotation. So the back end, like the ischium bones are moving towards the sacrum. So it's, it's, you know, it's different from anterior pelvic tilt, which would be the entire pelvis as a unit, just tipping forward versus like the actual movement of, of like ilium slash ischium bones, where in this case, it's almost like a dinner plate in the, in the sagittal plane where they're just kind of like almost like if a dinner plate rolled forward or a record was tipped uh, horizontal, like, like it was up, it was straight up and down vertical. If, it, if you spun it forward, uh, if you tip the top ends away from each other or away from midline, and then you took the back ends and pinched them towards the sacrum in the transverse plane, like that would be the, the inhalation position of the, of the pelvis 
uh, and at the same time, uh, when the, the ilium bones go into an inhale position uh, of tipping forward, the sacrum would counter nutate or tip back. And, and if you can just picture this, that would just simply be the entire pelvis expanding. Like it's moving away from midline for the most part in every way that it possibly can. And the exhalation position would be exactly the opposite, where the, the dinner plates would kind of roll backwards. Uh, the tops of the dinner plates would, would tip towards each other. And the back end would rotate away from the sacrum as the sacrum nutates or, or like basically tilts forward, um, which would just simply close that space uh, of, of, of like that pelvic opening of the top. Uh, and, and the rib cage, same thing. You could just think like the bottom of the rib cage uh, moves like a, like a, like a, a bucket handle. The sternum moves like a pump handle going up. And the rib cage at the top just expands in a 360-degree manner. So, like, I, I would essentially be defining the status of my axial skeleton based upon where it is in the respiratory cycle. Uh, and what I want from an axial skeleton is one that's capable of moving all the way into the end ranges of inhalation position and all the way into the, the end points of the exhalation position. Um, and there is a test that's used to determine whether or not you can actually have this full excursion of the axial skeleton through the end points of the respiratory cycle. And that would be the Ober's test, uh, AKA whether or not the femur can adduct across the midline from a sideline position. Uh, and if someone fails the Ober's test, then that would be uh, basically demonstrating that this person is unable to actually fully move their axial skeleton through the entire excursion of the, of the respiratory cycle. Uh, I don't know where they're limited, but they don't possess full respiratory variability. Hence, they don't possess full uh, movement variability. And you know, I would gain insight into which phase of respiration they're stuck in by the status of their infrasternal angle ribs, uh, because those are the most pliable and malleable bones in the body. Hence, they ultimately kind of are the first place that I could witness a, comp a compensatory response of the system uh, in response to trying to, uh, if, if I'm stuck in an exhalation, I need to inhale somewhere. It's just that I can't get my axial skeleton to actually move through that, that zone of being able to inhale. So what I'll do is I'll just simply gain an, a compensatory inhalation through the, the infrasternal angle ribs. And uh, so if I have an axial skeleton that's stuck in an exhale, that I, I, I figured out that the, the skeleton can't move through the full movement cycle of respiration via the Ober's test, then I take a look and I see that the infrasternal angle is really wide. I would say I've got an exhale-oriented stuck in the exhale position axial skeleton because they are in a compensatory inhalation. So the infrasternal angle will just simply be the opposite of the state of the axial skeleton uh, in terms of where it's stuck in the respiratory cycle. And I, I would just simply have specific interventions that I would use to try to uh, gain access to the parts of the respiratory cycle that the axial skeleton currently can't get into. Uh, as a treatment method, 
And I would go back and, and ultimately, if I can see that overs test fully clear, I would understand that the person now has full movement variability. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a, on a very basic level, kind of like a, 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 a you know, what, what we're thinking of from a movement variability standpoint. Now, there's other shapes that the axial skeleton can assume from mechanical loads being put onto it and, and specific actions that you could participate in for a long time. But from a very basic level, that's a, that's a description of what I'm thinking from a biomechanical perspective in terms of, is this a healthy axial skeleton or not? Um, you know, and, and like, that would just simply be for like a wild caught human, like this human that like lives in hunter gatherer status. Do I need to have that from the perspective of Western civilization? To some degree, probably, but I can probably deviate and do just fine in our culture. You know, I can look around and see old people that aren't even close to it left and right. And they're still managing. It's just that like, I wouldn't want to, to live inside their body because it can't feel very good. Um, and their, their level of function is compromised. Um, so that's kind of half the equation. Does this person possess full movement variability? Can their joints move in all directions? Can they go through the entire respiratory cycle with their axial skeleton to set themselves up for their appendicular skeleton to actually be able to uh, rotate, flex, extend, adduct, and abduct? Um, you know, and, and from a chemical side of the equation, I, I'm always looking for people to have a robust aerobic cycle and, or aerobic system. And, and my thought process in regards to that is that, again, the word variability is always popping up to me. And uh, from a substrate utilization perspective, the aerobic system is able to use any kind of substrate, yeah. whereas the glycolytic system is fairly limited for, for sugar and the phosphagen system is incredibly limited in terms of having like a basically like a creatine shuttle system as the only thing it can do to, to, to move uh, phosphate groups around. Um, so, so variability is the king in terms of health. Um, but in terms of performance, uh, you know, it's like you need to be just variable, variable enough so that you don't incur pain syndromes and increase maybe, maybe increase the likelihood of injury. Uh, but I, I just need you to have access to the positions that you need for your sport. Um, and not all sports have the same requirements. Once you have access to the positions that you need for your sport, now it's probably a good idea to increase uh, the specific amount of force that you need at the rate of force development required to execute the sport movements that you need to be able to execute. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, like, again, I'm giving this simple thing. Like, you just need to have uh, – you need to build the rate of force development in the joint actions of your sport uh, at the speeds of your sport. But a lot of prerequisites come before you can really do that at a high level and not hurt yourself. Like, that's fitness. So, um, you know, just from the perspective of having a baseline of, 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 of uh, maximal strength and having um, a level of, of fatigue resistance so that you can actually train with enough uh, volume and specificity to drive that factor. You know, it's like, uh, like anything. Like, the answer is kind of simple, but the ability to get to that answer is not linear necessarily. There's a lot of, like, foundational pieces that you have to put into place to give yourself a chance. Like when I say like I'm looking for a robust aerobic system for health, uh, the older you get, 
the more muscle mass you need to maintain in order to actually have the propulsion capabilities to demonstrate enough velocity in whatever pattern it is that you're in to actually witness your VO2 come up. You know, if you think about like an old person, they literally can't go through bipedal locomotion fast enough to drive the responses that would lead to uh, having a high VO2. So they, it's like the thing that I'm looking for, this endpoint thing, is, has a lot of foundational pieces that, that give me the right to express it. Uh, but I do define health by joint movement variability and uh, your VO2 score. So do, do you actually, like, how are you measuring uh, the aerobic system with your, with your day-to-day clients? Do you actually do a, a, a VO2 test or a modified VO2? Um, you know, I, I actually just use a five-minute run test on okay. a true-form true form treadmill, and I have no, like, specific normative database to be able to compare. But uh, anybody that is able to go half a mile in five minutes is like doing pretty good. Yeah. And if they can't do that, it's sort of like, it's, it's kind of a red flag uh, to me. Yeah. I, and, and for both genders, quite honestly. Um, Are you looking at any heart rates there, Pat? Like looking at like recovery heart rate or what, what, to, what max heart rate to hit and any recovery heart rate afterwards? Or are you just seeing you know, if they can Again, I work with general population clients. So, you know, I see these people all the time. Yeah, you know, it's I know. like, I, I don't necessarily need to, to do that. Cause it's like, if, if I'm working, see, this is one of these things, like a technology type question that I've, I've kind of been in these discussions with before in terms of like, how much technology do you, do you need? And I would just simply say like, how many humans do you have to be accountable for on a daily basis? Yeah. If yeah. I have a team of 50 people, uh, I need technology at my side because I can't have like a one-on-one conversation with them and I can't watch them and I can't like be there the entire time. If I have one person that I'm accountable for, uh, I, I don't need much in the way of technology because I'm right there witnessing it. Yeah. I can ask them questions. Uh, I can see their performance and watch them like mechanically break down at certain points. So, so that's really just a difference maker where I don't personally use a lot of technology on my day in and day out because I'm only working with one person at a time. It's, it's not really necessary. But if I'm the head strength coach of, a, of an NFL team and I've got like you know, a, a large group of people, I, I can't do the same thing. I need technology as a monitoring tool at that point in time to have an idea about uh, like acute and chronic responses. Yeah, you hear that, Belichick? Pat wants technology. <laughs> when, when you're yeah. when you're when you're hired for the Patriots job. Well, you know, again, what I would say about that is it's almost a scalability level because he's interested in like what is happening with the offense right now. Yeah. You know, in terms of this play, it's still like a one piece thing. Yeah. It's not like he has to be responsible for examining all the offenses in the NFL. Like if he had to call the plays for all offenses in the NFL for every play of their season, he would probably need technology at that point. Yeah. Um, but it's just a one team, one offense, uh, which is, you know what I mean? So it's, it's just different. I like uh, I, I think that's, that's really all it is. He doesn't need, he can, his eyes and his experience when he's dealing with one offense at a time is probably okay. Just uh, as a side, well, it's, it's not really a digression because we're talking about Bill Bill Belichick. But I'm watching a documentary on uh, 
fucking um, Tom Landry, and like he apparently mm. he's, he's got the record for the most amount, most amount of winning seasons in, in a row, like so twenty seasons or something like that. And yeah. I just I just said interest checked Belichick. I was like Belichick has had a winning season every season since eighteen, right? Yeah, yeah. He's gonna break that, is he? Looks looks like looks yeah. Like I, I don't I don't see any way that that's not gonna happen. Yeah, he's an absolute legend. But come uh, here. One thing I do want to ask too is within your model here uh, is do you consider a psychological element? Because you know some people might ask, what about psychological health? Yeah, I mean it's just outside the domain of of a fitness professional. Okay. Um, to to really get into that that area, like I you know I just try to have the definitions that I can actually do something about. Like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, like. Um, well, I like, mean, like, can we really separate, like, you know, physiology, movement? Yeah, can we really, like, you're, you're impacting someone's psychology, as we spoke about, with, like, with mass. You know that, you know, I always love that about when you discuss mass and um, mass one and mass two. Like, the, you like to see like how someone's reacting when they're in that sort of environment. Yeah, and I would just say that, like, you know, when when you really get into, like, I, I recently went through the book Spark, which I, is kind of an older book at this point, but yeah, John Rennie, you know, it yeah. just. You know, it discusses the, um, you know, a lot of the literature pertaining to, uh, like, psychological measurements and fitness, and, and primarily within the, 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 the area of aerobic fitness. Yeah. And you just see across the board, like, when people regularly participate in aerobic training and improve their aerobic fitness, their psychological well-being improves. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really hard to separate physiology from psychology and, like, you know, it, you get into these realms of like homeostasis and allostasis and the way that physiology drives behavior and then behavior feed, feeds back on physiology mm-hmm. in, a, in a cycle. So it, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, I just feel like if you have a higher aerobic score, chances are, uh, just from a probability standpoint, that your psychology is doing better. Well, I mean, like mechanistically, brains getting more blood flow. I mean, that that can only be a good thing to brain function, and obviously, like your your psychological output. But just uh, Kelly Brogan, who's a psych psychiatrist, she's actually in New York City. She's based in New York City. She was on Joe Rogan's podcast a while back. But uh, Ben House has spoken about her 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 work previously as well. You know, she she's very like shunned by conventional medicine, even though she's she's conventionally she's a conventional doctor by training, like because she utilizes lifestyle interventions for psychological health um, and she mm. ra- rarely uses drugs. But, you know, she was saying on Rogan's podcast about, like, there's a plethora of literature out there, a plethora of literature out there that, that shows that exercise kicks the shit out of, like, any drug in terms of psychological well-being. Yeah. I don't, I don't even see why that's, like, uh, contentious at this point. Like, at least Spark put forward a ton of literature showing that, and that's yeah. not even updated as far as, like, yeah. you know, 20, 2018. Like, it's it's not even close. Like the chemical responses that take place from aerobic exercise or seem to be the best antidepressant in nature. It, it seems to like balance neurotransmitters and, um, it's cause it's, 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 it's addictive. It's addictive as folks. We all know about the opiate, how you get after exercise. Like, you know, me, yeah. me and you and, and, and everyone who's in sort of our circle of influence, like we're all addicted to exercise. We fucking love it. We're fucking addicts to it. Yeah. And I don't think that that's a, bad thing like yeah yeah i I just think like you know if if you if you lived in the wild like you don't have a choice like you have to exercise you have to like walk a long ways you probably have to run like just to acquire calories you know it's just that yeah you know it's probably intelligent to limit your activities uh just so you don't expend more calories than is than is smart you know when 
when there's a limited uh, resource situation versus nowadays, it's like, it's an unlimited input situation. And like we have, we've inherited genes that, that, that bias us towards to, uh, you know, not spending calories. But then like, I, I just think that if you can create that habit, like you feel better, mm. you, you learn how much better it is. So there's a lot of like inputs that can like, you know, cognitively and emotionally override probably the genetic tendency towards like uh, being lazy. Yeah. Uh, something that popped into my head uh, while we were talking about uh, homeostasis and allostasis there later on, and I just wanted to ask you to get your thoughts on it was like, do, do you think that the organism in a way it, it like it craves like challenge? It, it craves like, you know, it, it wants to get uncomfortable. And if so, like, do you think that like certain behaviors that people have in the modern era, like with technology and phones and maybe even like things like drugs and drinks, do you think that they're like mechanisms to like give that element of like danger to the organism almost so that it's not getting through going into like, you know, situations where it needs to like respond robustly. Do you know what I'm saying? Is yeah, that, totally. I think yeah. that just like, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be a successful young male homeo, homo sapien, from the perspective of actually being able to pass on your genes from most cultures around the world, you need to show some initiative and some risk taking. Yes. Um, and, and that's when we see these dangerous behaviors pop up the most in like the, the population that's most likely to die of like a car crash or something like that. Young males, uh, adolescent males. And, and like you, you see them in public and you're like, Oh boy, here we go. Like, you know, you, you just know, like, to kind of keep your distance from them because they're unpredictable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every day, like, the, the guys I work with at Hype, after we, we work out, like, we'd walk to get lunch. And, like, for whatever reason, like, the same high school kids would be getting out at the same time. And, like, it, they'd just drive us crazy because they're always, like, pushing and shoving each other and getting into fights and, like, almost falling into traffic. And you're, like, watching them almost, like, knock old people over on the street. And you're, like... You know, I, I feel like an old man, like, boys, boys, stop this madness, you know, but it's like they're, they're, they're pushing and testing their limits. Um, in, you know, in, I, I, in one way, it's great to see, though, too, isn't it? Like that free spirit. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And it, I'm like a little jealous, you know what I mean? Yes. Because yeah. it's like I'm, I'm not really there anymore. I, I am and I'm, not, and I'm not at the same time because I'm like, oh, I don't really want to like push and shove with somebody 100%, else. 100%, 100% know what you're saying. I, 100%. I could. I could hurt myself, you know, um, <laughs> but it, it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of like if you've, if you've read, uh, the Jordan Peterson stuff, um, where he's got, you know, in, in his, in his rules, his 12 rules for life, he has one that's like, uh, don't interrupt kids when they're skateboarding or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and he just talks about like, uh, like playgrounds, for instance, when, when adults try to take kids playgrounds and make them overly safe, the kids instinctively figure out ways to use the equipment in ways it was never intended for to make it more dangerous mm. because they need to challenge themselves. They're actually like little scientists where they're going through like this test retest battery of like where their limits are. And you, you don't really know how to behave until you kind of know where the, the constraints are, the endpoints, uh, so that you can kind of weave your way in between them. But yeah, like uh, it's, it's, it's instinctive to test your limits and figure out what you're capable of. Otherwise you're like a little mama's boy that no female homo sapien is going to take seriously as a reproductive partner. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and like, I know Jordan Peterson makes these really interesting comments about the way that like school systems are, are failing males in some ways, because, you know, males are going to tend towards more risk taking uh, based on like evolutionary uh, strategies to actually like attract and acquire female mates um, and, and how schools are just so standardized and force you to follow rules and how a lot of times like viable males are, are utilizing like genomic driven characteristics that would make them a little bit more confrontational, uh, more defiant and oppositional and, and how schools now are like losing these males and these kids are giving up on school and not trying, getting bad grades and then not advancing as far as they could. And, and these might be some of our best males. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that like aren't going to take shit from somebody and they're going to do it their way. And these could be like the, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the people that like take risks and, and like we should be giving them avenues to explore what it is about themselves that can make them great. And, and that is the risk taking, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, I, I agree with what he's saying on that front. Like we need, and I'm not saying that women aren't like that. I'm just saying statistically speaking, the probabilities are that they're going to be more males that are a little bit more uh, oppositional and defiant uh, because they would need to, to try to stand out from other males. Because if you're going to be a successful hunter, you probably have to take some chances every now and then and get a little wild and figure out what you can and can't do. It's the same thing in sports. Like the younger players in sports pull out these crazy moves and they drop jaws and they stand out and now all of a sudden they can get paid. But um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I do think our society is failing to recognize the, yes. rea the greater reality. Like we try to impose like these cultural beliefs or like, yeah, it just reminds me of like sociologists sort of saying like gender is a socially developed construct. And it's like, no, it's not like men are different than women. Like if you can't accept that, then, then I do think that you've reached this point of like academic, like, like intellectual yet idiot. And you are also like mildly insane. If you can't see that for, for a reality uh, thing that, that should slap you in the face, men are different than women. Yeah. Um, like what, what, what's coming to my mind there, you know, you mentioned the high schools, like the word that came to my head is like, you know, sanitized, like just everywhere is like so sanitized yep. now, you know what I mean? And it, it, it's like, what comes into my mind too is that sort of rebellious kid in class and it's just like, you know, they bring him to a counsellor and there's something wrong and it's like, no, he's a fucking, he's a young male with testosterone roaring through his bones, like, and he needs to, exp yeah. he needs to express it. And like, kind of, what kind of came to my head as you were answering that question too, and you just, you just like alluded to it and it was kind of like, as it came into my head, this, like, my, I went to myself, well, duh. I was like, that's what sport was invented for. It was an avenue so that we, mm -hmm. so that we could express ourselves in that, like, animalistic mindset and you're 100 yeah. percent right there on that sociology point too like what came into my head as you said sociology was religion so many religions yeah. are like you know you got to suppress that animal aspect you know it needs to it needs to be kept down and in place and the other way it's like it's not good to show emotions or anything like that and it's just like listen that is 100 percent part of a human's makeup and if it can be transcended in a positive way like someone doing something amazing on, on a sporting pitch or in a sporting event like that is a part of being alive. I mean, if you read literature on flow, like I mean, that's 
that's part of the flow state you know what i mean to to, mm-hmm. to basically transcend that animalistic sort of nature of us as humans like it's just it needs an outlet and that's kind of it's so good talking to you and i know someone's gonna be oh my god he's kissing pat's ass again but like it's just like the question i asked you like like i didn't even word it well but you were you like just were like 100 i know exactly what you're trying to ask me and like your answer is just like and what you're talking about here is just like resonating so much it's the oldest it's literally the oldest written story of all time the epic of gilgamesh um where you know it's like Gilgamesh is this king in 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 the in the Middle East, and like the the townsfolk are being uh, they're afraid because there's this wild man Enkidu who is still living with the animals and he's hairy but he's like tearing shit up and like he's causing problems and uh, <laughs> and and it's like and Gilgamesh is tasked with this challenge of like hey man you got to bring this guy down because we can't live with this guy being a wild man. And, and Gilgamesh goes out into the wild and finds him and they fight and they come to a draw. And, uh, and Gilgamesh is like, I can't beat this guy. Uh, and, and it's funny because Enkidu, like he lives with the animals and he communicates with the animals and there, there's no, there's no boundaries between them. He's just one of them. And he, but he comes up with this strategy and he sends this beautiful woman out and Enkidu is like, you know, transfixed by her he's never seen anything like this but she subdues him and civilizes him and now all of a sudden like he can't continue to live in the wild he's forced to be civilized and come into the city and and uh, ultimately like he and Gilgamesh become friends and they have these you know epic journeys together in that whole thing but it, it it's it's literally the oldest written story that exists the, the the epic of Gilgamesh and it speaks to this 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 personal story that we all kind of go through of being forced to be civilized. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this like dual nature that we still have and, and how we, once you lose that, it's gone. And, uh, and, you know, I always tried to coach my athletes and strongman to be a little bit wild, you yeah. know, like I, um, I, I, I can remember early on with, with Zach Hadge competing and like, he's a wild man. He still is to a certain degree, but um, when he was like a 19, 20 year old kid, like, you know, other competitors at contests would be like, they'd almost come up to him and be like, Hey man, you got to rein it in like emotionally. Like this isn't, you know, they'd talk to me. They're like, yeah, you got to get that Hatch boy to like learn how to calm down. And I was like, I disagree. I want this guy to stay an animal as long as he possibly can. I don't want him to be trapped in the confines of what civilization slaps on people. You know, like I want this dude to stay wild and as wild as he possibly can, as long as he possibly can. Um, and, and I just think that that's sort of like, I see it, you see it happen in professional sports yeah. where these younger guys are like unstoppable for a few years. And in America, you know, it's like, uh, all of this, like, there's so many suburban families, and it's like they they think that their kid is going to be the one that's going to get the Division One's college scholarship. And like most of the kids that get college sports scholarships are from ghettos or yeah. the country. Yeah, you know what I mean. And it's like they have nothing, but they're they're a little bit more wild. And I think that that plays. You know, when I talk about aerobic fitness and, and joint movement variability, I think that. And you, you asked about psychology. Like, this is the stuff that, that goes on in the back of my mind that I don't have, like, empirical evidence to support me with these kinds of claims. But I think that, like, kids from the suburbs are a little bit uptight. 
they're like they kind of have a stick up their ass yeah and these kids that that were raised in these other venues like like country kids that were out like driving pickup trucks and shooting guns and hunting and and doing this kind of stuff and uh you know ghetto kids that are barely supervised and they're out there by themselves with other kids they're they're a little bit less civilized they're a little bit less like conditioned to suppressing these kinds of drives and just these emotional outputs. And I do think that the nervous system impacts movement to a tremendous degree and that the nervous system is like this, this thing governed by a constant input of this combination of cognition and emotion and consciousness and subconsciousness mm -hmm. um, and autonomics, like all at the same time. And, and to try to separate those things is, is like, it's impossible. It's, it, it's not a real thing, but it's like, you know, even, even with these NFL players that get arrested for, for these, these, um, you know, domestic abuse things and, or I'm not, I'm not condoning battering. I, I know exactly where you're going. I mean. yeah, yeah, but like these, mean. these guys are less civilized and that I think allows them to be able to show what they can show on the field. And then we we're, we're expecting them to behave like bankers yeah. and lawyers or something like that when they're off the field. And it's like, uh, like, why would you expect that? Like, and, and this guy probably needs this edge. Like if, if you're a civilized person that grew up in like upper middle class, typical white society, uh, AKA like you're kind of mentally soft in some ways compared to these people, like in, in like these really hazardous environments, like I'm going to trust the black kid from Compton all day, every day if I have to be in this kind of wild street environment over like some white kid from Greenwich, Connecticut, like it's a, it's kind of a no brainer to me. Um, you know who I'm going to trust and who's probably going to be tougher when the shit hits the fan and there's physical contact involved and, and that whole deal. So yeah, what gives you the ability to just embrace contact and play on the edge is probably this degree of scaring the most civilized people amongst us. There's, uh, I've mentioned, <laughs> I've mentioned this gentleman multiple times on multiple podcasts because his books were just, his books, his writings are very profound to me, but Joseph Shilton Pierce writes extensively on this topic. He calls, he calls what we're alluding to here enculturation. So he's like, we, we, you know, when you see kids and a kid is born and they have that beautiful wild spirit and he's, and he's like, then we fucking rob that by, we, we enculturate them with, with the expectations of society. So we basically fucking indoctrinate them and brainwash them. And he's like, that's why you see kids with all these radical behaviors when they're young, like, because they're in such conflict. They're like, my wildness needs, craves this, like, it craves me to like, go explore the world. And yet like your caregiver then goes, no, 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 don't touch that. That's dangerous. And then the child's like in these conflicts things like, oh, but like my wild part wants me to like understand this and interact. My sensory motor system needs to learn the environment here. And then, but my caregiver who I love unconditionally because they, they like look after me, tell me no. And then they're in this conflict and it just leads to like all this, it, it, it just becomes very detrimental to, to humans development. Yeah. And like you, you sorry, just before you answer, yeah, yeah, you, you also wrapped, uh, wrapped it up beautifully there because in my mind, what was coming to, uh, as you were speaking, was uh, about that, that, that kid you spoke about who did the strongman. And like people were like, do you not think you should tame him down? And I was thinking, absolutely not. Because if you don't let him express that nature of his essence in the realm of strongman, he'll do it somewhere else where it could be a yeah. detriment to him and others. And you just alluded that to with like the NFL players. Those guys who do the amazing things on the pitch, they're fucking a bit wild. 
Um, and, and like you know what we should be saying is let them be wild on the pitch that's where that's where it's safe to express that shit and that's where like again the most incredible athletic events and, and achievements happen and we watched that and we watched it and it's so funny you're so right too in a way I know you didn't say this but you were kind of alluding to it like it's such a double standard in that we stand up and applaud their wild behaviour on the pitch but then mm-hmm. if they do something outside that like a speeding ticket or a drink driving or gambling or drug taking it's like that's like what do you expect? They they need to be yeah. able to filter that animalistic mindset. I think I use the word transcend. Maybe transmute is better. They need to be able to transmute that animalistic nature and essence of their being into you know ideally positive acts. Again, like playing sport, that's why sport is is so beneficial to humans in so many ways. But it's yeah. just that we need to understand and appreciate that. And uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. But go on with your point. Well, it's like you know, it would be great to have the best of both worlds. You know, because it's like, you know, I, I fully understand like, like, you know, this parenting style of like, let your kids explore everything possible, blah, blah, blah. But then you also don't want your kid to grow up to be an asshole that like, you know, other people are like, I hate this person. You know what I mean? And, um, so it's kind of like, you know, you have to be there to tell your kid, like, listen, that kind of what you just did is unacceptable. And if you continue to behave that way, like literally nobody is going to like you and you're going to have no, no friends and you're not going to be able to get a good job. And uh, I'm saying this to you because I care about you. And, and it's very likely like if I don't say this to you now, like you're just going to make your way into adulthood where no one's going to say this to you, but you're going to find yourself alone with nobody to talk to. What 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 I'll say, what I'll say to there is that you explain that fully where, because you have the maturity and understanding that that's what they need to know. Whereas a lot of parents will just say, "Disgrace will go to your room," and they don't give yeah. they don't give that background frame of reference. You're like, "Listen, what you done was unacceptable, and here's what what here are the consequences." And then you also said, and the reason I'm telling you this is because like I care about you, I love you, you're my child. Yeah. So like, you know, when it's said like that, then like they get a frame of reference going. Oh, I seen it. Whereas, like most people, and again, it's because it's the blind leading the blind. Like, like mm. Pat, like ninety percent of people with kids just shouldn't have. They shouldn't have kids. Like you know, and and there, and there's no and listen. I'm not saying that in in a way that Jesus. I'm the, like I'm single. No, like I can say I'm single. I have no fucking partner. No kids. So like I mean, it's easy for me to say. Listen, no fucking doubt. Parenting is fucking hard. I was a child. I saw and I love my parents. And everything they done, but like, I'm just like. Uh, everyone's doing the best they can with, with the life skills that they were given, but it's kind of like just a perpetual uh, game of Donwells where it's just like, you know, they kind of just portray the parenting skills they got from their parents who got it from their parents. Like I always joke, we're fucked up from our parents who are fucked up from their parents who are fucked up from their parents. Mm. But it does take, it does take a mature person to step in there and like stop that generational game of, 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 you know, handing down these skills of parenting and be able to say, Do you know, what? I'm going to, you know, develop myself personally as a human first investigate what it truly means to help a child develop and blossom and you know try and facilitate that environment for my child so i just appreciate the way you worded that because see see like you and you didn't even notice that because you, that's just part of your essence you're such a well-read smart individual you look at things from that thirty thousand square foot view you realize that nothing's in isolation everything's connected you're like myself we're both universal human beings we realize that everything is connected so like you're in the position that you know when you do become a father like you will have that, you'll be able to give that frame of reference to your daughter, to your son, uh, or, or you know, or to your twins. Who knows? And uh, my my know, gender, my gender neutral child. Your gender neutral <laughs> child. I'm not going to impose societal or or like yeah, like like gender gender is a construct, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> 
But if that's what I said. Most parents just don't give that frame of reference. So that's kind of what I was saying. But yeah, yeah. You, you could, if you want to expand or continue on there, what you were saying, which is very good. Well, you know, I actually, like last night I was having this, this conversation with my wife because um, I was just sort of thinking about like, you know, this time during like evolution where at some point, like we weren't quite homo sapiens from the perspective of like the level of self-awareness that we possess. We were actually just talking about like, people that we can't stand like dealing with in the city that they're just like, you know, walking around on their phones and like they just have no awareness of anybody else. And like, uh, they're just a pain in the ass. Like there's so many of them. They try to get on the train before you've gotten off the train. And they just like, it's, it's a real problem. I would say at this point, like, just like, uh, like bumbling, like almost like Mr. Magoo type humans that just like seem to have not been hit by cars in the city yet. Like, somehow like but anyways it was like um way back when when human consciousness and self-awareness was was really coming online like during whatever stage that was and there had to have been certain members that just like were very self-conscious and self-aware and then others that were like kind of like what i was talking about like enkidu and gilgamesh like hey that guy my cousin over there is totally wild like he has no self-consciousness he is an animal he is not really like one of us um and but you would probably see like more and more of us coming online in many ways to like this true consciousness state um that that we kind of possess now and and we're such a culturally dominant animal that you know once once that cultural evolution mechanism kicks in, like it's just like wildfire yeah. and, and you can be on the same page, but, but, you know, she kind of asked like, um, and I was sort of saying that it plays itself out in, in, in a microcosm in terms of every living being like during your life, like as you're aging and maturing, like when you can see like, Oh, this person's like totally with it now. Like this, like five-year-old is very different than this two-year-old. The two-year-old's like not really conscious of what's going on around them or anything like that. They're not really online. But all of a sudden, this person over here, like this person, like you can see it in their eyes. Uh, they're they're beginning to become part of the the conscious collectiveness. But she was sort of saying like, well, do you think that there's different degrees? And I and I was sort of alluding to the fact that I think the more self-aware you are, the more aware of others you can become. Um, and then she asked, like, yeah. well, do you think that there's differences in awareness levels between humans? And I was like, oh, absolutely. Or, or consciousness levels of humans. And I was like, 100%. Like, I think, again, like, it, it's this ratio of, of the degree to which you can become self-aware uh, leads to the ability to which you can possess awareness of others as well. And, and, and like, that just... It, you know, and, and it's like, you know, people that are completely unaware of what's going on around them. And they're usually just assholes. Um, they're people you don't want to deal with. They're, they're not. Um, and, and they have no self-awareness either. So it was, it was just really, really kind of an interesting uh, topic. But it was almost like you don't need all people to be uh, like to reach these like maybe like Dalai Lama type levels of self-awareness and awareness yeah. of others. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's a curious thing of how many doors you want people to unlock or, or whatever. And I think if you're just from a social perspective, the more doors, the better, but maybe from a sports perspective, uh, like keeping them unaware of things and limitations or anything like that is, is possibly a good idea and keeping them more on that wild side less consciously lit up in some ways like it's a weird thing to say but 
but I think that it can be um, almost a problem. Like too self-aware yeah. in some sports is like, well, now it's like this paralysis through analysis you, thing. You, you've killed what was beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've I've seen that too. Yeah, I've been around. I've been around some like very high level athletes. You know, so far, and so have you probably, and like there actually is times where like I'm talking to them, and in my head I go, you know what, ignorance is bliss for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's yeah. actually it's actually good they're learning not as tuned in because they probably need that to be able to do what they can do in their sport. Yeah, it's it's just a really like I think it gets to like a topic and a and a conversation point that's like super uh meta-analysis kind yeah. of like you know like uh it's a it's it's like the question of all questions from well listen when, when when me and you do our dmt trip together we'll, we'll have a conversation around it <laughs> come here though i know you have to go in eight minutes and i do just kind of want to get you to kind of maybe summarize your 2018 and tell me what's happening in 2019 and also to you recently have a new product out there with with derek mike and ben so if you want to maybe yeah yeah, so, you know, the big things for me, like I'm trying to think like what, what was maybe in 2017, but I believe that, that both Reckoning presentations at, at Mike Ramphone's place were in 2018. Um, well, I the, ended fir- up- the first one was actually November 17. Oh, okay, so, yeah. all right. I actually meant to say that to you, sorry, and I, and I will let you speak here, because you were saying that, you know, you've done so much traveling and, and like, you, you know, you've done so much. And I was, I was thinking to myself, to be honest, you've been on the go nonstop since October 17, because that was the whole China trip and then the yep. reckoning. And so it's kind of, it's been over a year. It's been like almost 15 months, really. Oh, well, yeah. sorry, sorry, it's been 12 months. Sorry, it's December. It's been like 14 months almost. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. You have a better idea of my timeline than I do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it feels like that was pretty close to the 18 year. And like, I just kind of lumped that in there. Yeah, uh, true, true, true. But kind of, kind of both reckonings, um, doing that stuff. Like I, I, um, put together the rethinking the big pattern seminar, uh, in 18. Um, that's getting you know, phenomenal I, feedback by the way. Yeah. I think it's a really good product. You know what I mean? And, and the video version of it is, is a pretty reasonable price. Uh, yeah. at, which is, like which two, is always linked up in their show notes when you're on it. So just for the listeners yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, it's 229 and it's a two day seminar that, that, you know, has a lot of info in it. And, and the first, you know, like the first 30 minutes is free too, isn't it? You have it up for free. Yeah. You watch the first three, yeah. So people can go watch that and then be like, get hooked and like, okay, I need to watch the rest of this. So, you know, like, um, you know, in, in, in that time, I think I went to Costa Rica a couple times for, for those trips and like training camp type stuff. And, um, you know, we had the Texas trip recently, which was, which was wild. And like, just, you know, those things I love because like, there's an element where we can just get wild again. Like, it's like, you get really smart people in there. And I think we all need just like a release from it. And it's like, uh, you know, let's, let's train, let's joke around. And it's fun because there's like no TV and usually there's like almost no service that you can get. So like, you know, there's a level of boredom that, that gets involved. And as soon as people get bored, they start doing stuff together. You know what I mean? And like, uh, it just gets kind of like you get telling jokes and you get creative. You get creative is what you get because it's constraints. Exactly. You get super creative. But Pat, like this goes back to like, we touched on the kids earlier on. It's like, you know, if you took away the Wi-Fi and the phone and you sit down and you're kind of like, one party's going like, I'm an old, boring fucking man. And then like, there's no party going, get up and do something, you wild fuck. Exactly. Exactly. I try to keep training with people as young as I can, as I can keep in my training groups. Yeah. You know, because it's like you feed off that energy and like, 
I'm super competitive, so I hate losing to anybody. And it's like, oh, it makes sense that you're not as capable as like these 25 to 30-year-olds uh, at, you know, almost 40 years old. But to me, it's like I don't want to accept it. And I'll, I'll do whatever I can to stay in the mix and, and continue to hold my own. Um, but it, it's also from an attitude perspective. It's like I, I always try to spend time around younger people because I feel like it keeps me young. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, Hype, Hype Gym has been uh, a great experience in 2018. Um, you know, we keep growing. We actually, you know, we have our education sessions every Wednesday at one o'clock and, um, and those are an hour and we've been, we've been video recording them and, and, uh, and now we actually are releasing those as a product where people can, I think it's six ninety five per month and, uh, and people are going to have access to all of the ones that we've recorded and we've been doing these things for a little over a year now. Um, so there's, there's probably about 40 of them and, uh, and, and we'll continue to do these things every Wednesday at one o'clock, um, Eastern time for the U S uh, and, and with the 695 membership, you'd be able to see those every week, uh, on the video. So, uh, that's great. Like, uh, coming up, going forward at hype, like, uh, the concept that I've been working on from a group, group training perspective and, and quantifying, training like uh the kaiser people just shipped all of that equipment from california it left their facility yesterday so it's it's on a truck and it's going to be driving across the country fucking sweet that should get delivered right around christmas either right before or right after so that's going to exist and i think that's going to be crazy once that actually uh once people see that and experience that um you know at hype we're, we're doing a lot of cool things like uh in April, uh, myself and, and Mike Isretel are going to do a two-day seminar Very together good. at, at Hype. Um, we're going to have Zach Couples there, uh, I believe, in, in May. We're going to have Mike T. Nelson teaching RPR, levels one and two. Uh, all that stuff is on the Hype uh, website. Um, in March, I'm going to be going down to Costa Rica again. for They have a strength and conditioning uh, week. Like it's preceded by a nutrition week at Ben House's yeah. place. Um, ben and I are going to be teaching uh, as part of a four-day seminar in Costa Rica. It's like a, uh, a Costa Rican fitness and nutrition summit uh, that will be in May. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So like uh, I know I'm doing a, a Northwest ACSM presentation in, in Oregon at some point, I believe in March. So and also in February uh, in Massachusetts, it's going to be myself, Zach Couples, and Seth Oberst at Pure Performance. And uh, we're teaching a two-day seminar that we're calling The Revolution that's going to focus on anti-fragility and, uh, and approaching it from like Seth's expertise is, is kind of in the realms of like uh, psychology and trauma and, and people that, that have backgrounds that maybe we're unfamiliar with um, as practitioners. And and what to do when you encounter that as, as kind of your limiter. And Zach, of course, is like this, you know, PT biomechanical genius uh, who will do his part on that side of things. And, and I'm going to transition it into uh, the training side of the spectrum. Uh, so super excited about that one. I actually, uh, so, I, I don't know much about Seth. Seth's work. I must look, must look, uh, look into him. But just on, on Zach Couples, like, I also love the way he just presents. Like, he's got that. He's got such a laid back nature. It's so like calming. 
he's a great dude. Like he's, uh, he's dope. really funny too. And, um, actually a pretty talented freestyle rapper. If you, uh, if you get him going, his impressions uh, are he phenomenal. Also, Jim, he did, he, I had him on my podcast. It's not released yet. He does a phenomenal Ronald Reagan impression. It's unbelievable. Does he really? Yeah. That's he's, uh, also, he's got a great Arnold. Yeah. And, uh, his, his Jesse, the body Ventura from predator is the most spot on one I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love Zach Couples, man. He's a he is a great dude. Real, um, uh, real quick there as well. I saw some pictures of you lately. You are fucking jacked. What are you doing? Well, I mean, I'm up to. I was up to 230 pounds before Texas. Oh so. my god, you were up to 230. You what? You you competed at 175, didn't you? In in, in strongman, yeah. I think, when I, gotten, I think when I met you, you were like 205, were you? maybe 205. Yeah, that sounds about right. I've gotten pretty fat though too, so I gotta like I've actually um, you know. I'm going to be doing uh, like a like a training camp thing in August. And my goal is to actually try to get down to about 190 by August. Wow. Like, uh, yeah. So it's like, you know, and I think it's very doable. Like I, like I get I definitely see my strength increase when I just increase weight, even if it's fat. Um, but I've just gotten to a point where I'm like, man, I'm definitely like starting to look like uh, middle of the road population America. And and I need to like I need to to have a body composition uh, yeah, revamp yeah. here. So uh, you know I've just been eating like to get up to two thirty, and I couldn't really crack the two thirty mark, no matter how many calories of hyper palatable, probably unhealthy food I would eat. But you know at that point in time, like my whole mission was to try to beat uh, my boy Vinny in um, in some ten rep max contests and and the Cajun workout. So it was like, whatever, whatever it takes, like I will become the fattest person I can if it continues to move barbell weights up. I love it. It it was. That's what I love about you. Just like there's (laughs) there's a, there's a goal and you're just like, if you say I'm doing it, I'm fucking all, I'm all in. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, like it was like uh, the, you know, my weekends would just consist of like, you know, eating fried food and dessert after every meal. Like I was, you know, like my wife was like, you need to stop buying bags of cookies because I can't just be in the house because I keep eating them. And I was like, I'm trying to gain weight here. So it was just like I would, I would like come home and buy a bag of cookies and eat that after like pretty much every meal. Um, yeah. So it, it's just like, hey, if you got like a lot of people and I didn't even want to eat these damn cookies at a certain point. Like I've, I know. I've already lost I've already lost seven pounds. And it's not like I've been like locked in or anything. I just haven't been like force feeding myself to the point where I feel like I'm sick after every meal. Yeah, um, yeah I get you. So, so one final thing there too. Sorry, the the three amigos that actually end up being the four amigos. Yes, that's, that's all. Just maybe plug that too for listeners. That looks very interesting. The one you do with Derek. Yeah, and for sure. Like that, we called that one the melding of models. And it, it was um, originally the three amigos, and they were like, "Here, Ben's coming." Well, it was cool. Like. Um, you know, Ben just sent me a message like, Hey, uh, my wife's actually like teaching something in the city. I'm going to be traveling up with her. It's going to be during this weekend. I think it was in October. And, um, he's like, you know, I just wanted to let you know, like, if you're around, I'll be around. We can like hang out or something. And I was like, Hey, you know, actually that weekend I'm doing a seminar with, uh, Michael Mullen and Michael Mullen and Derek Hansen. Like, are you interested in possibly jumping in? And because it's like, it's supposed to be on, on models. You know what I mean? Kind of like, you know, my weight room model, Michael Mullins rehab model and Derek's uh, return to play from hamstring injury and speed development models. Like 
you know, what we're missing in reality is you. Like, we don't have the guy that can deal with, like, the nutrition side of things and really, like, the chemical side of things. Um, it would be cool how, like, if you could jump in here and say, like, here's where if, if these guys are doing everything that they should and the person still seems to be, like, stalling out, like, here's where I jump in and what I look at. But anyways, like, Ben, ben like, was – you know, and everybody was happy to have Ben jump in on it. And, right. um, and I'll tell you what, he, he tore it up that weekend too. Like I've seen Ben present a number of times. And I think that weekend was the best I've ever seen him. Um, and, and I think in part, because we actually created a constraint for the seminar, yeah. we, we wanted it to be an anti-seminar, AKA no PowerPoint, uh, more question and answer as opposed to just straight lecture. Um, and, and that's what we did. The only thing you were allowed to have for presentation purposes was a whiteboard and markers. And, um, and I thought it went really, really well. You know, I, I just think that it, it like had a really good organic flow to it. The audience participated. Uh, and I think like we really talked about that, which we know at a very high level and do on a regular basis from the perspective of like, here's my model and here's how I execute it. And here's what I'm looking for. And, I'm going to use this person as a demonstration and, and we're going to put it into live time so you can see this stuff in action. And um, I, I just think like it had a great feel to it. And I know that Derek actually handled all of the, um, you know, camera and audio stuff and he does a fantastic yeah. job with that. So the video quality and the audio quality is, is really exceptional, which can make a big difference because half the time it's like, it feels like a, you know, the sixth grade class project when you see these strength and conditioning seminars on video. Um, so when you can actually hear every word and it looks good from like a, a camera quality perspective, it, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And for everyone listening, that's all in the show notes, everything Pat mentioned there, you know, from the reckoning one and two and from his, uh, rethinking the big patterns to the uh, melding of the minds there. That'll all be wrapped up in the show notes. And, uh, just Bill, yeah. Bill, Har- Bill Hartman told me to ask you, how's your cook, your kooky Lars? Oh, you know, it's starting to merge into separate upper trap and suboccipital <laughs> space. Uh, really? you know, I, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to go to the intensive too. To oh just get my god! To, to uh, did you hear, did you hear the podcast? I don't know. I haven't listened to it yet. I haven't been able to really listen to it's, anything. It's only it's only it's only me speaking. Just but it's it's like a solo podcast. It's about an hour long. Just with the whole experience, like as you know, Bill Hartman and Lisa, phenomenal human beings. Like it was it was, yeah. it, was it was five of the best days of my life ever. And 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 it wasn't even anything to do with the fucking seminar itself. And you you know what I mean. Like it was just just yeah. being in that environment. But uh, also, uh, Jim Laird apparently has smaller arms than you. I, I found it out. Yeah, like if Jim Laird is sitting on the ground on his butt with his legs straight out in front of him, he cannot touch the ground with his fingers. That is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I can get like almost palms to the ground. So uh, Laird, from the perspective of like ratios of axial skeleton to appendicular skeleton, is the most tilted towards axial skeleton human I've ever met in my life. That's phenomenal. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. All right. Listen, <laughs> you, you have to go. You were five minutes over and you do. And I know, I know what your schedule is like. You're one of these guys that like, if you're, if you start falling five, 10 minutes behind, like you can screw up your whole day. But, uh, if you can finally, finally answer there, uh, what are you reading right now? I am going through, uh, Yuval 
uh, Harari, like Noah Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Oh, very good. I have, I've seen just, it, but I haven't read it yet. Just, just started it, um, but I think that it's it, – it, it definitely is I, – I love that guy's writing. Like, Sapiens and Homo Deus uh, were two of the best books I've ever read. Just a – I just like everything about it's fantastic. So uh, I got that going on and, and I've, I've begun the process of, of putting together the presentation for rethinking the big patterns too, mm. which I'm super excited about actually, because to me, like, like rethinking the big patterns, one just opens the door in terms of, of thinking about like, you know, the big patterns of training. Like uh, I think I identify the big ones. I think some people might have some ones that, that I don't or whatever, but, but like they're, you know, from the perspective of stuff you do in the weight room slash uh, preparatory environment for athletes, I think I have all the big, the big training patterns that we do. But, you know, in, in that first one, it was more about teaching competencies. Like this is the sagittal plane. And, and if you utilize these things, like you're going to feel the sagittal plane come to life. And this is the frontal plane. And this is the transverse plane. And like, here's your rule book for how to maximize these planes within these patterns and in rethinking the big patterns too, it's kind of like, let's go through all of these patterns and really think about examples of activities that, that come out of these patterns in different domains of like movement quantity from the perspective of like load velocity and duration. And like what makes sense as an activity, um, you know, like, like for instance, like I, like if I have locomotion as my pattern and loading is high and velocity is low and duration is short to moderate, like what is that? Well, it's a loaded carry, um, you know, and, and how would I actually, if I want to incorporate uh, high load, low velocity locomotion, what is the smartest way to introduce the easiest version of that activity to a program? And what is the sequencing? to get to the most advanced version of that in a program. Um, and, and there's a rationale put in for every single one of those things. Uh, so I, I try to do my best and it's kind of like, it really is causing me to, 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 to go back in time in some ways and think about like attending kettlebell lifting classes for activities that would, that would be like a, a Turkish getup or, you know, to think about like listening to Derek with speed development and like what's the right sequence to put people through for locomotion when the load is low, but the velocity is high. Um, and so it's, to me, it's, it's going to be uh, this major, super expansive thing in terms of progressions and regressions within all movement patterns for different stances and planes at different loading and velocity zones. And, and also like this perspective of designing programs for individuals of different needs uh, you know, from the perspective of these are the kinds of athletes that have much more sagittal plane dominant needs, like linebackers and linemen are sagittal plane creatures more that need to be able to deal with high loads. And tennis players are kind of like asymmetric stance athletes that need to have like a frontal plane pelvis and a transverse plane thorax at, you know, lower loads and higher velocities. So how do we skew their training programs to actually lead towards the adaptations that are most essential for them um, with like actual programs that you can see these sequences of activities played out over time in? 
So I think it's like, in, in many ways, like there's been this statement of like, we don't want cookie cutter programs for people or anything like that. But at the same time, like, do you have a plan that makes sense when you encounter certain individuals? And, and I'm just trying to take this huge step back and actually give people very specific thought through exact plans for different kinds of populations with sort of a, a, a principle-based rule book that kind of forms the backbone of it. Sweet. Just give me one second here. Sure. I had to take a piss. Oh, no problem, man. I've actually just pissed you into a bottle as we speak. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to edit this bit out. You, know? you heard me, listeners. This is the sacrifices I make to bring you these unbelievable conversations. Mir, that's absolutely phenomenal. And as always, I uh, can't wait to, to see the end product. But uh, currently myself, I'm reading uh, Team Arrivals, a book on Lincoln's administration. I finished Deep Work hmm. by Cal Newport. And I'm 200 pages away from finishing the fifth edition of Exercise Physiology by McArdle Catch and Catch. McArdle no Catch shit. Yeah, that's I, a monster. So yeah, yeah but see, awesome. see, what what I do, what I what I do, Pat, is I, I always have a textbook on the go where I read it for at least one hour every morning, and then sometimes if I can get an extra two or three hours in the evening, uh, and like by by like ten weeks, you have the whole textbook read. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. And I have like all my little sticky notes made it and everything, and then that's so that like because I probably have about. I probably have about seven or eight like textbooks read cover to cover in my life so far. Like, and so that's what I just do. Like, so that's kind of like my, they're kind of like my aerobic system. They're always like in the background, just kind of always going even here while I read, while I read other books faster. Mm. In between so like, but like I could read like 10 books by the time I start and finish a textbook, but it's a textbook. Sure. All my morning read. So that's, that's what I'm currently doing right now in terms of, in terms of reading and college work. But, uh, listen, phenomenal conversation as always. I'll say goodbye to you here offline now. So, for the listeners, all of Pat's information will be linked up in the show notes. So make sure you go over and check out his website. Everything the man has produced is just absolutely quality information as always. And just, again, as a human being, he's a fucking legend. So, Pat, thanks so much today. Robbie, thank you, man. All right. Just uh, I'll take my to offline. But for everyone listening, as I always say at the end of every podcast, well, first of all, you're spoiled people with this information. But for now, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.